Hi guys, welcome back to Best Explanation Staff Edition. I'm your host, Dr. Sugarman, if you don't know me yet. Today we're going to be talking about eclampsia. This is otherwise known as hypocalcemia, meaning we have low calcium, or milk fever is the other layman's terms for it. We're going to discuss the symptoms, diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of this. So hopefully we can help out the pet owners out there whose pets are having these symptoms. So eclampsia, it's a condition that affects female dogs and cats who have just given birth. It can happen before birth as well, but this typically happens within the first four weeks after giving birth. This condition is life-threatening. So if it's not treated properly, these pets can die. So we do want to make sure that they are brought in promptly for treatment. It's also really important to understand that this is not the same condition as in people. So people will often ask if it's the same thing after I tell them it's eclampsia, but it's not the same thing. Calcium is the, what's really important in eclampsia. Usually this is ingested just through the dog or cat's diet, and then it's processed by the body and put into the dog and cat's milk for those puppies and kittens later. Eclampsia usually happens with our larger litters, so they have a lot of demand on their body for nutrients such as calcium and fat. I will say it does tend to happen more in small breed dogs than in larger breed dogs, but I have seen it just a couple of times in large breed dogs as well. If they don't get enough calcium in their diet, they're going to start pulling that calcium from other places. And the most common place is actually going to be their bone. Calcium is extremely important for lots of things for mom and for puppies and kittens. For mom, it's really important for how her heart beats. So calcium actually makes it to where that beat lasts longer. You have a little conduction that goes from the top of your heart, and then it goes down to the bottom of your heart and tells your heart to beat correctly. If you don't have enough calcium, that signal can't get all the way down to the bottom of your heart before the top of the heart starts beating again. Now if that happens, we don't have enough blood going out of the body. The other thing that's really important for is how nerves fire and how muscles move. A lot of times, one of the clinical signs we see is going to be like trembling or shaking. And that's because their calcium is being depleted. They don't have enough of it. And so that's making their nerves like fire over and over again. One of the first things to know is just some of the symptoms of this. It mostly affects the brain and then also the nerves. So that's why you're going to be seeing a lot of these signs as neurological signs and muscular signs. So we'd call that neuromuscular signs. For dogs, it's usually lethargy, so they're really lethargic, super tired. They really don't want to do anything or move. Cats are actually the opposite of this. They're running around like crazy, like they are trying to run around and they can't sit still. For both of them, it's trembling and shaking. They'll have muscle stiffness or spasms of their muscles. They will lose their appetite. They may have vomiting or diarrhea, and they'll have high fevers because all of that like twitching and shaking creates a lot of heat inside their body. And so their temperatures will rise very quickly. Typically with this, we say high fever, but it's just more that it's a hyperthermia. So for those of you who've watched the episode or listened to the episode on fever versus hyperthermia, this is more technically a hyperthermia because they cannot get rid of enough heat. It's not because they're in a hot environment. They'll have rapid breathing and panting. They may have pruritus, which is scratching. So they'll scratch at their face a lot. They're just like paw at their face a lot. They'll have those muscle twitches, like I was saying before, seizures, coma even. So they can be non-responsive because there's too much swelling in their brain by that point. And then death, unfortunately, too. So eclampsia happens, like I said, to female dogs and cats, usually within the first four weeks of giving birth. 
Cats actually are pretty quick after that, though. They usually get it in the first stages of lactation. So as right after they give birth within the first like one to two weeks is the most common for cats, whereas dogs can be anywhere within that four week time period. And it's four weeks because that's usually about the time that their puppies and kittens are starting to eat wet food. So we don't see it as often because there's not as much demand when they're eating other foods. Like I said, this is definitely like smaller breed pets, but it can be any pet, any dog, cat, doesn't matter. And then dogs and cats can even have it in the weeks leading up to giving birth because there's just, they're just not getting enough calcium, especially because even though the puppies and kittens aren't nursing, they're still pulling a lot of calcium for things like their bones need calcium. And so if mom doesn't have enough, she's going to start pulling from her bones and putting it into their bones, essentially. All right, so how do we diagnose this? Luckily, there's not a lot of tests that we do have to do for this. We're typically checking the calcium because this is hypocalcemia, right? So we want to check the calcium levels. So pretty much if you are triaging a pet and let's say the chihuahua that gave birth two weeks ago and they have a litter of 10, they came in for shaking, trembling. That's always hard because it's a chihuahua, right? You're like, are they shaking because they're shaking because they're a chihuahua or are they shaking because there's actually a problem? If you start doing other things, like you get their TPR and you notice that their temperature is high, this should also be more of an indication to you that there's probably something going on and this could be potentially eclampsia. So some of the things to do is to get blood work on her. So I usually say if you're going to draw blood out of Chihuahua, you might as well get like everything you need right then and there because the chances that you're going to have a second try are pretty low. So make sure you just get everything for doing the basic 17. So everything you get a CBC and a chemistry so that you can just write everything as you need. But you also need to get an ionized calcium. Those, I believe, are on the green top tube. So you want to make sure you get that as well. Typically, we check the calcium one of two ways. One is going to be the total calcium. So that's how much calcium is in the body total. Versus the other way, the more accurate way is going to be ionized calcium. Ionized means that it's not bound to something. So calcium likes to grab onto other things, usually a protein. And if it's bound, then it's going to become total calcium because it's going to look at all the calcium in the body. But we want to know how much calcium is not bound to something. So we want to know how much calcium is free-floating in the veins. That's going to be our more accurate one because that's the ones that are freely usable for other things like going to bones and going into mammary glands for the milk. So we want to check the ionized calcium. The other thing that you're going to want to check is the blood glucose level. So even though she might be eating just fine before this, especially small dogs and cats, like they're using a lot of glucose or a lot of blood sugar to be able to give more nutrients back to the babies. So we want to check their blood glucose and see if it's low because we may need to supplement that as well. You'll also see some people do full blood work, so doing basic 17. That's why I say just grab it if you need to. Because there might be some instances where it just doesn't make sense. I've definitely had a dog that was two years old, a little chihuahua, and she only had three puppies. That's kind of weird to me. I'm like, that's not a really big litter. Is this truly that? Or do we have some other problem that's going on? So you can have a lot of other problems that cause low calcium as well. Kidney problems is definitely one of them. We want to check those things like her kidney values to see if it could be that. The other thing that we usually will want to check is an x-ray is just to make sure that there's no skeletal structures in that puppy or kitten. That two-year-old one that I mentioned that only had three puppies and we did a x-ray and there was a skeletal structure that was left in there. And that was the cause of her hypocalcemia. 
So we want to make sure that we're checking those things as well. It was a dead puppy, unfortunately, by the way. But we want to make sure to check those things as well to make sure there's not something else that's going on when it just doesn't quite make sense. I've also had a cat that had hypocalcemia with one kitten. So and there was nothing else that we could find. And so it just happens sometimes. All right. So once we've gotten the calcium level, if we see that it's low, then we know that we can start treating our dog or cat with calcium. So how are we going to treat this? The first thing we want to do is stabilize the dog or cat. We want to put in an IV catheter because we want to give calcium through the IV. Some people will do it just with a butterfly catheter, but you don't know how many you're going to have to give. A lot of times when we see low calcium, we're taking our best guess as to how much she's going to need. But there's no correlation to say if her calcium is under one, then you need to give this much. There's just no correlation that way. We have to give some and then see if that was enough and then give more if we need to. But also we want to put in a catheter because if we push the calcium too fast, this could be a big problem. So I'll go over that in just a second. We want to put her on the ECG monitor. So we're monitoring her heart rate to see what it's doing. A lot of times when you give calcium, the first thing that's going to happen is bradycardia. So meaning that her heart rate becomes low. If you start noticing bradycardia, as you're pushing the calcium, you need to stop for a second, wait until it goes back to normal, and then start giving it again. Because if you give it too fast, you can start to cause arrhythmias. So her heart will not beat correctly. And if we push it too fast that way, we can even cause death. So we need to make sure that we're looking at the ECG to make sure that we're not pushing it too fast and to make sure that we're giving the adequate amounts. Because remember, the calcium affects the muscle of the heart. So it can be really important for that. And then the other thing too, like I said, is check for hypoglycemia, so low blood sugar, because we need to know if her blood sugar is low, if we need to give her sugar supplementation. So if we do, we want to start giving dextrose supplementation. Always make sure that you dilute the dextrose when it's going IV like that. So 50% is a big amount, and that's what it usually comes in is dextrose 50%. But we want to dilute that down. So at least half of that. So half of it is going to be saline or LRS, whatever her fluids are that you hook it up to is fine. But the other half of it is going to be our dextrose. So we want to give that as well. This one you don't have to give as slowly. Like you can push it pretty quickly. It's not a big deal. But definitely with the calcium, we got to do that slow. And then sometimes too, we're even going to want to give them fluids. So either fluids IV while we're waiting to see if this works, we can help cool her down and replenish some of her other nutrients or giving fluids into the skin. So sub-Q fluids, again, so we can help with those nutrients and cooling her down. And then we're going to repeat that calcium testing to see where her calcium is at. Sometimes they're going to be close to normal and we're okay with that. If it's at least close to normal, we can always give oral supplementation. So we're going to give medication for that just by mouth if it's pretty close. But if it's not that close, we still need to give more IV doses if that's the case. So just kind of give you a scenario. The most common scenario that we see is that mom's given birth. Everything's going fine. By week two or three, the pet parents start noticing that their little dog is shaking and tremoring and didn't really want to eat that day and is panting really hard. And so they call in and they're like, hey, these are all the symptoms. And let's say our receptionist is super on top of it. And is like, you really need to get her down. This does sound like something that needs to be seen. And they bring the pet down. As soon as it gets to triage, you'll start asking those questions of how long has it been? How many puppies or kittens were in the litter? Is she getting any calcium supplementation at home? Because that's also going to be important. We'll talk about that later. And also, what kind of food is she on? 
That's also going to be important for us because we need to know what kind of food she's on to best talk to them about what food she should be on instead. So like I said, they come in, you triage, and then bring them into the back. So also definitely ask them for whether we can get blood work going on them and get an IV catheter into them. Because the faster we can get this going, the less likely we're going to have other problems like swelling of the brain. So we get an okay for that. Immediately start drawing for your calcium. So again, the green top tube so we can see the ionized calcium, what it is. And then other blood work as well would be great. But again, if not, that's okay. You could always just take one drop of what you just put in the green top tube before it goes in there and just put it into the glucometer. And that way you'll have an accurate glucose as well. I don't recommend doing it from things like the ear or things like the paw pad for these situations, because if you don't have enough blood flow going to that area, then you're not going to get an accurate blood glucose. So you do want to get one directly from the vein. And I will tell you, everybody knows on my shifts, if you tell me that there is a low blood glucose, I will make you get it from a vein because it's just not accurate. So we need to make sure we get it from a vein anytime it says that it's low. So we're also going to hook her up to the ECG and then giving her medication as soon as I tell you like how much to give. And then also, like I said, if we need to, we'll put her on IV fluids and stuff as well. But it really just depends on like how hot she is and how she's doing. Did she vomit? Is she dying of diarrhea? As to like what things I'm going to do for her there. If the pet is comatose, that's going to be our worst prognosis. That means we already have swelling in the brain, which is not good. If that's the case, then we need to have her in oxygen. We're going to need a critical care sheet signed because we need to make sure we can just try to get her as stabilized as possible. When you put her in oxygen, anytime you have a pet that has brain trauma, definitely put them at a 30 degree angle with their head up. Don't just put the head at a 30 degree angle, like their whole body has to go at a 30 degree angle. So we make sure that we can decrease some of that swelling in the brain. And then we're going to keep rechecking those calcium levels, even on those ones that are comatose until they're normal. We may have to keep supplementing with calcium for those ones that are comatose because they can't eat it, right? They're not eating at that point. So you may need to supplement those things until we can get them to the point of eating. But we don't know what their brain is going to be like afterwards. We don't know how much damage has been done. So I always talk to them about, I don't know what it's going to be like afterwards. And if that's the case that it got so bad that they were comatose, that means that mom can't have those puppies anymore. One of the big things is also talking to them about having the puppies be bottle fed. There's a lot of controversy behind this, okay? So some people will say, just stop them for 12 to 24 hours of nursing, have them being bottle fed for that period of time, because that's how much time it takes for their body to recover. So if we are sending them home and then having them just nurse again, we're going to be risking going into eclampsia again. So we want to actually take them away from mom, take the puppies and kittens away from mom, that 12 to 24 hours, ideally 24 hours, that way her body can replenish that calcium. It not only goes in the bloodstream, but it goes to all the other tissues as well. So even though I've put calcium back in her veins and it says it's normal, that's only in her veins. She's now going to pull all of that calcium to other things like her bones and her kidneys and her heart and her muscles and her nerves. So ideally, we don't want her to nurse and then put all of that calcium back into the milk again. The other thought is to wean the puppies completely from mom and only to bottle feed them. I know how hard this is for owners when they're like, that's 12 puppies that I have to bottle feed. How am I going to do that? I usually recommend having other people help them. If they have family members, I can come help them, especially to wake up in the middle of the night because we want them fed every two to three hours. And if you're waking up every three hours, like I did that with my kid and it was terrible. Or even more than every three hours, we were waking up every two hours with my kid. That was absolutely terrible. 
I did lots of bottle feeding with puppies and kittens. I think that was way easier than having a baby that woke up every two hours. But anyways, having somebody else try to help them, having a collective unit, or even having people who are breeders that can help them as well, because sometimes they can nurse off of other dogs that had been bred before that are still producing milk, or there's lots of other resources that they can use too. People always want to feed puppies and kittens. Even if you're up during the day for multiple hours, have people during the day do it. So that way you're not doing it. And then that way other people can do it as well. So definitely things to talk to those pet parents about. And then for mom at home, we also want to continue supplementation. Tums is actually a really good one for this. Many people use it for heartburn for themselves, but Tums is actually made out of calcium carbonate. There are lots of different types of calcium. But calcium carbonate is really easy on the stomach. It's super easy to get. You can just get it over the counter and it's easy to give. It comes in crumbly tablets that if the dogs won't eat it because they're usually like some weird flavor, berry or whatever, then you can crush it up and give it to them with liquid. Super easy to do. So the dose for this is usually going to be 55 to 110 milligrams per pound per day. So if you have somebody calling in and says, I don't know how much Tums to give, first of all, I do not recommend that they give treatments and stuff when they think that their dog is just tremoring. They need to have diagnosed it and known that this is what their pet has and then get supplementation through the IV. It's going to take a while for that Tums to digest in their system. And so it's not going to work immediately. I also do not suggest that they give it during pregnancy as well. Again, we'll talk about that in a minute. but. If somebody calls and they're like, I had seen my regular vet and then they told me to get Tums, but I don't know how much to give. This is going to be their dose. So about, even if you say 50 to 100 is even close enough, 50 to 100 milligrams per pound per day. That's an easy way for owners to remember it. If you start doing kilograms, then they just don't understand it because they don't have to do the math, but that should be divided between three to four doses throughout the day. So if you take 100 milligrams and divide that dose into four doses, that's essentially about 25 milligrams per pound, four times a day. Okay. And then they should be on it the entire time they're nursing the babies. So if they do decide that they're going to keep them nursing, they should be on it that whole time. They should not come off of it until they start weaning the puppies. When they start weaning, then the owners can start weaning the tums. That's a really good thing for people who are checking these dogs out to talk about, to make sure that they understand this isn't just like you're going to go home and give Tums for a day or two. You're giving Tums the whole time she's nursing. If we're going to be taking the puppies away or kittens away, like weaning them, then the best thing to do for that is just to wean them and then have mom on the calcium supplementation for at least two weeks afterwards to make sure we've replenished all of that calcium that she needs. With treatment, usually the prognosis is really good. We don't really have to worry about it as long as it's not to the point to where they're comatose, then like I said, that's a poorer prognosis. But just with getting good supplementation, they usually do just fine. Now, prevention is going to be our biggest thing. So people always want to know, how can I prevent this in the future? So prevention is going to be the best treatment for this. So to do that, we want to make sure that the pets are on a really well-balanced diet it has really good nutrition to it. And it used to be that we would say that we should give puppy food or kitten food while they're pregnant. But they've actually done a lot of studies to find that's not the best way to do that. Because if you're giving calcium supplementation or too much fat and stuff for them, then that can cause some problems. So first of all, with giving too much calcium, it can actually cause like calcium deposits in the puppy and kitten's skin 
or in their muscles, which causes a big problem while they're trying to grow. And then also her body is not going to have good homeostasis, meaning it doesn't have a balance in her body to know where to pull from because you're just putting more and more calcium in there and it doesn't effectively know how to pull it out of places that it needs when we're now storing it. So we don't want to give it during pregnancy. Also, like the thing with fat, there's a lot of fat that's in puppy and kitten food. So our goal is that she doesn't gain more than 15 to 25% of her body weight. So let's say you have a 10 pound dog. We don't want her to gain more than two and a half pounds, essentially. So if you have her gain too much, then she's going to have more problems with giving birth. Like the more overweight they are, the harder it is for them to give birth. So we don't want them to do that. But at the same time, we also need them to have a good amount of fat stored on them. Really, the best thing is to give a really high quality diet. There are tons of people who have opinions on which diets and stuff to give. There's never like one thing that you can recommend. But there are some papers out there that say that you should give a really good, highly digestible, good quality food. So if you have somebody who says that they're feeding puppy chow, that's not going to be a good quality food. Like we need a good quality food. I will tell you these kind of statistics, even though I don't expect you to remember them, but the AKC usually recommends that they have at least 29% protein, 17% fat, and less than 5% dietary fiber. The fiber is important because if you have a lot of fiber that makes it more filling, and the more filling it is, the more that they're going to, like their stomach is going to expand and make them more uncomfortable and they're less likely to eat because their stomach is just really full. They also want a calcium level between 1% to 1.6% and a phosphorus level between 0.8% and 1.6% based on just how much calcium she needs and how much phosphorus that she needs. They have a lot of great articles out there. And if you have people who want to know about some of those things, you're welcome to send them over to my Vesplanation because I go over all of those things as well. But one that I do tell people about is called the Royal Canin Starter Mother and Baby. It comes to dog food and cat food. It's pretty close to those recommendations. The protein is about 28% versus the 29% that's recommended. Their fat is 20% versus the 17% fat that the AKC recommends. And then their fiber is 3.4, so definitely less than 5% fiber. That's pretty close. So I do think that's a pretty good one to be able to give puppies and kittens. Again, I know everybody has an opinion about it. So it's just one of those diets that at least it's labeled specifically for them. And that way you can try to get them some diet that's pretty close to what they need. There are some people who'd prefer to do like a homemade diet as well. If they go to balance it, B-A-L-A-N-C-E-I-T, balanceit.com. It's actually a veterinary nutritionist that you can put in where she is in her gestation or if she's lactating. You can put in the ingredients that you want and it'll come up with a diet for you. That's going to be a balanced diet for that mom. So that's another really good one as well. Some people also like to have their food made and then have their food sent to them. Just Food for Dogs does that. So you can actually call in to the place and say, my dog is at the last stages of pregnancy and I want to switch her food. And then they'll get a food that's going to be good for the rest of her pregnancy and one that's going to be good for lactating. So that's another option as well. And they just send the food to them. A common question that we're going to get is, will it happen again? So the answer is no. If... They give a really good, high-quality diet. When she's pregnant, she doesn't need as much demand during the first part of her pregnancy because those puppies and kittens are growing pretty minimally. But during the last part of the pregnancy, she is going to need a lot more of that food. So as long as they're giving a really good, high-quality diet, at least towards the end of pregnancy and on to when she's lactating, then 
they usually won't. But if she's not fed a high quality diet, she absolutely will. She will have this happen again. And for people who have this happen like multiple times, like I usually tell them that she needs to stop breeding at this point because it's going to become more life-threatening if that's the case. All right. That was a lot on eclampsia. Hopefully everybody understood that. And I don't really have a really funny fact for you today. I just actually wanted to apologize because I didn't do one for last week. My grandma's been in the hospital, so it's been a little touch and go, just trying to call and talk to a lot of doctors and stuff. Hopefully she does okay. Hopefully I don't need to go down there. So if I do, I might not be on for a couple of weeks, so don't be surprised. But yeah. So if you have any questions, anything you want me to go over, again, any topics you want, email me, text me, find me in the halls. I'm happy to do any of your topics. Okay. Thanks guys. Also for anyone who celebrates Pride Month, happy Pride. And for those that just celebrated Juneteenth, I hope you had a relaxing day. 